For this episode of Metaphors Be With You, we'll be discussing Disney's proof of concept on side stories. I think they proved it pretty good. Hi, I'm Rob Hyatt of Chipperish Media, and this is a podcast about symbolism and allegory in Star Wars. The movies, the TV shows, the books, and everything else. Except during this appendix to Season 3, when instead I'm going to go through this last two movies to find the metaphors hidden in each one. Rogue One, A Star Wars Story was an interesting experiment from a production point of view. Disney, still high off the fumes of acquiring one of the most beloved IPs on Earth for over $4 billion, was busily trying to figure out how to recoup that investment ASAP. A sequel trilogy was a no-brainer, but even at their fastest, they couldn't really commit to releasing those faster than one every other year. Lucas made each of his Star Wars movies in about three years, so this is already pretty accelerated. The theory, then, was that off-years could be filled with anthology films, or side stories, that would be largely self-contained, and Rogue One was their first crack at the idea. At the time, it looked like there would be a new Star Wars film every December forever, and I figured related merch would be my Christmases until I died, but the plan fell apart relatively quickly. I have mixed feelings about this. Anyway, this movie is remarkable for a few reasons. First, it is easily the most diverse movie in the franchise's history, with a female lead, characters of various races, some disability representation, and arguably queer rep, but also queer baiting, since Jarrett and Bays are never confirmed as a couple, but come on! It does, however, fall into some tropes, because of course it does. One thing that it does subvert, however, is the happy ending. While hope is a major theme of the movie, all the main characters have died by the end, which came as a shock to my then nine-year-old son, who is still kind of mad at the movie for making him care about these people and then making him watch them die. Especially the robot. But that's all at the end, and we should probably start at the beginning. Rogue One begins like no Star Wars film before it, with no crawl, no episode number, and the score starting abruptly with a loud note that practically shouts, Surprise! Our view then rises up from a planet to see what could be an Imperial Star Destroyer, but no, it's the rings of a different planet. And where every other Star Wars film to date would go straight up or straight down into some kind of starship, we instead pan sideways, because this is a side story. The first ship we see is a small shuttle, and the first several shots are all very wide, making the subject small. We won't be focusing on any of the big, important characters of the Star Wars saga here. This will be a smaller, more contained adventure. And speaking of things that are smaller and more contained, we have Director Krennic. We meet him in an off-white uniform surrounded by black-armored stormtroopers, in an almost photonegative reversal of Darth Vader's introduction in A New Hope. In another weird continuation and inversion of the villains in the original Star Wars, Krennic speaks perfectly normally, while his troopers have an exaggerated form of Vader's modulated voice. But I don't think Krennic's death troopers talk like the adults in Peanuts to remind us of Darth Vader. I think they don't have intelligible voices so that they are not people, but functional extensions of Krennic's power. They're his version of Vader's force powers, and when he shows up on the Urso farm, he has six of them, and the wind is quite literally at his back. This is about as powerful as we'll ever see Krennic, who will get picked on by the more important villains throughout the movie. It's also worth mentioning the ship Krennic arrives in, which is, in my humble opinion, one of the two ugliest ships in the franchise the other of which, the shuttle that our heroes used to infiltrate Scarif at the end, also premieres in this movie. So why do two such extraordinarily hideous designs both get introduced here? I have a theory, and it's about the Brutalism School of Architecture. I should preface this by saying I don't have any actual expertise in architecture, so take everything I'm about to say with a grain of salt. First of all, if you're not familiar with Brutalism, it was a school of architecture founded in the 1950s as a reaction to the sentimental nostalgia of the 40s. It's characterized by a lack of decoration, often with exposed concrete or brick, and a lot of flat surfaces. 
In Rogue One, Darth Vader's castle appears, and was explicitly designed with a brutalist aesthetic in mind, according to a blurb in the book The Art of Rogue One. I would also argue, with my zero architectural expertise, that these two hideous spaceships are also informed by brutalism. And as a movie that deals a lot with the Empire during the time between the prequels and the original trilogy, brutalism makes a lot of sense. Remember that the original brutalist architects were reacting against what they saw as too much sentimentalism in buildings. So for coming from the Art Deco stylings of the prequels and showing an empire in ascendancy, brutalism in its inexpensive, no frills, but very functional style makes a lot of sense. The style has since fallen out of favor because it's associated with oppressive cheapskate governments, and no one wants to be seen that way. So I applaud the choice, even if I find these ships hideous. And I feel like Krennic, who is frequently described in secondary sources as the Death Star Project's metaphorical architect, is a perfect character to represent this vision of the Empire. An obsession with the functional and dismissal of anything that might bring joy or comfort seems right in line with someone who would build a planet-destroying super laser and mount it in a flying murder ball. But Krennic, while presumably a pretty effective and capable guy to have risen as far as he has, is clearly punching above his weight class against Grand Moff Tarkin, who immediately realizes that their pilot defector couldn't have acted alone and that someone at Galen's facility has to have helped him. This revelation is obviously a shock to Krennic, who has to scramble to deal with the problem, which he addresses with a big clumsy show of force because subtlety is not his strong suit. QV, planet-destroying murder ball. I'm interested that the filmmakers also gave us a sort of equivalent to Krennic on the rebel side in Admiral Draven, the mean officer who gives Cassian his orders. Consider that he finds out that Jeddah has been destroyed, past tense, and decides they need to kill Galen Erso ASAP. But if the Death Star exists and is functional, killing its inventor isn't going to help. Light bulbs didn't stop working when Thomas Edison died, and wheels didn't suddenly become square when Tharn the cave woman was eaten by a Smilodon. Killing Galen Erso can't possibly help, but capturing him alive perhaps could, since he might just have some useful insights about weaknesses the rebels could exploit. Spoiler, he does. So let's talk a bit about Galen's daughter, the protagonist of this movie. There's a weird motif that follows Jen around and forms an interesting three-beat for her arc, which is the opened door. When she's a child, hiding in the shelter after her mother is killed and her father abducted, a rebel, in this case Saw Guerrera, opens the door, beginning a new chapter of her life. When the adult Jin is on an Imperial prison transport, a rebel, some nameless commando, opens the door, beginning her association with the Rebel Alliance. And moving into the final act of the movie, inside the Scarif facility, a rebel, K2SO, opens the door. But in the spirit of a good three-beat, the circumstances of this one are very different. Most significantly, Jin has chosen to be in this place. She's not being rescued by anyone. Furthermore, the third door is about going deeper into danger, not escaping an existing danger. And finally, once she and Cassian have gone through this last door, K closes it again, because this is a one-way trip. More on this a little later. This, to me, is the core of Jin's story, and to a lesser extent, the whole movie. While Jin isn't a great protagonist from a story structure perspective, since she's passive and reactive most of the way through, her arc brings her to a place where she takes charge of her destiny. Cassian's arc feels similar to me, in that we see and hear about him doing terrible things, but a turning point for him is when Jin points out that I had orders is not the moral defense he thinks it is when we're fighting stormtroopers. Between Cassian's awakenings here and Admiral Draven's presence in the story, I get the impression that the Rebel Alliance starts off a bit more like the Empire than anyone wants to admit, and maybe Jin and her team wind up inspiring some of the change toward a more principled organization. Cassian and Jin both tell us that rebellions are built on hope, but the plot mechanics underscore that point and make it literally true. Mon Mothma says they can't risk an attack because the odds are too great without the full support of the Council, which means that the Alliance won't do anything as a body until its members can become hopeful enough to imagine being successful. It is not possible to defeat an enemy if you can't imagine doing it. It's also important that the Alliance is a collection of disparate voices, because that's democracy and collective action, which is morally superior to the dictatorship they're trying to overthrow. 
The movie isn't shy about showing us the downside of a democracy, the constant disagreement which can lead to paralysis, but it also shows us the beautiful strength of people working toward a goal larger than themselves. When a handful of small rebel ships disable a huge Star Destroyer, then use its bulk as a weapon against another Star Destroyer, and break through the planetary shield with their combined momentum, that's the whole war, writ small. And each of our heroes completes their part of the plan without ever knowing whether the Death Star or the Empire will eventually be destroyed, but understanding that they got the ball a little further up the field. I hope I'm using that sports metaphor correctly. I'm not very good at them. And as I alluded earlier, every one of those heroes knows that this is a one-way trip. When they first land on Scarif, Cassian tells Bodhi to keep the engine running because the ship is the only way they have to escape. But I submit that Cassian is saying this to keep Bodhi occupied. The odds of them succeeding at putting the entire facility on high alert are close to nil, and the ship they arrived in is a non-combat cargo shuttle which would get cut to ribbons if it tried to leave during a security lockdown. So each one of the Rogue One crew dies, but all of them know they have advanced the cause in some way and are willing to make that choice. So let's contrast that with the case of Saul Guerrero, who I would argue represents rebellion without hope. Saul has certainly been enthusiastically fighting the Empire, but it's not clear to me that he thinks he can win. I think someone who is fighting with an eye to win wouldn't be trying so very hard to discredit a possible defector with important information. I think Saul and his group are fighting with an eye to fighting more. When we first meet Saw, we see his prosthetics, the evidence of his injuries, before we see him properly. His war against the Empire has left him very scarred, and per the ableist aesthetic of the Star Wars universe, that loss of bodily integrity means his morality is also compromised. I've mentioned it before, but the big whiff he takes off his oxygen mask before his most paranoid pronouncements is not a coincidence. It's part of a leitmotif with Darth Vader. Side note, Saw is a great example of crippled black man trope, which I can only assume is rooted in a white need to see mangled black bodies, and that's a problem. There is a plot impact from Saw's condition, in that it gives him an excuse to not try to keep up with Jin and the others when Jeddah City is about to be destroyed. As foreshadowed by Cassian's informant at the beginning, someone is too injured to escape the danger and will have to be left behind. Obviously, the difference is that Saw volunteers to be left behind, and unfortunately leaps into that other famous trope, the black guy is the first to die. We are told that Saw's group is extremist, but many have argued that we don't see enough of the difference between them and the Rebel Alliance. Personally, I don't need to know what their specific tactics might be to have a sense that they're less than heroic. When we first meet the Partisans, which is what secondary sources have named Saw's group, right in the middle there's a soldier wearing a scout trooper helmet. Metaphorically, these guys have a bit of the Empire in them. Obviously, Saw is a paranoid madman. Putting Bodhi through the torture with Bor Gullet, not even changing his mind about the guy in response to him presumably passing the test. And it feels significant that one of Saw's lieutenants lies about capturing Bodhi and finding the message when he surrendered to them and volunteered the message. As a group, we are not interested in assuaging any of Saw's paranoid delusions, and in fact, we're going to stir them up intentionally. And we cut directly from the Partisan's ill-treatment of Bodhi to the huge fallen statue of a Jedi outside, because the galaxy has lost its spiritual guides and suffered for it. And on the subject of giant Jedi statues, it's interesting that Saw has set up his group on Jedi, but I'm not sure what it gains him beyond symbolism, unless he moved his group there in reaction to the Empire's Kyra mining project, which is possible. Anyway, Star Wars is not typically known for the subtlety of its allegories, but Jeddah, I think, hits the nail maybe a bit too precisely on the head. It's a place significant to multiple religious traditions, with a mineral energy resource that the militaristic outside government wants and is willing to turn the place into a war zone over. Oh, and a bunch of the locals are in space turbines, just in case you missed what we're doing. There are tanks in the street and young men shooting assault rifles at each other. What I'm getting at is that Jeddah City is what we're intended to picture when the news describes the war-torn streets of Beirut or Baghdad or really any other part of the Middle East. And I'm pretty sure that's the intent. Personally, I think if your metaphor for a fraught real-world set of geopolitics is this precise, you should probably have something to say about it rather than just remind you of anything. So here on the tropey world of Jeddah, we meet Chirrut Emwi and Baze Malvus. 
As a blind martial artist of Asian descent and inscrutable speech, Shirat checks a lot of trope boxes in rapid succession, which is unfortunate. I do appreciate that Bayes helps him undo some of that, since surly Asian guy with a giant machine gun is at least not a trope I'm familiar with. And I like this pair together. It's queerbaity, since they seem so very much like a romantic couple, but the movie never confirms this. But I enjoy their dynamic, however you read it. And Bayes mourning Turret's death is, for my money, the saddest thing in Star Wars, full stop. In terms of metaphors, obviously Turret is a representative of the Force for this movie. And I love the moment when not only does he shoot down a TIE fighter with a single shot, but the blazing wreckage of that TIE then crashes into another part of the Imperial facility. It's a great foreshadowing for A New Hope of how one perfect shot can set off a chain reaction when you act in harmony with the Force. On the extreme opposite end of the spiritual spectrum, K2SO is another first for the films, which is a good guy droid built for combat. Naturally, this means that he's actually an Imperial droid captured and reprogrammed, because that's generally anathema for the good guys in Star Wars to build violence into the machines. They prefer their violence all natural. You can see this tension illustrated toward the beginning of the movie, when Kay is obviously envious that Jin gets a gun and he doesn't. Jin gives him one toward the end, indicating that he's now a, a real boy, but what happens in between is a bit chilling. Remember that, according to Cassian, the whole Rogue One team has done terrible things in the name of the Rebellion, presumably things like murdering an informant as he did when we first met him. We don't know one way or the other if Kay has ever done something similar before, but we watch him extracting data from the back of an identical droid's head in a scene that's about as grisly as a file transfer can possibly be. It's possible that part of the reason K2SO gets to be a full part of the team is that he's now definitely murdered someone similar to himself in the name of the Rebellion and... Ugh. It's worth noting, by the way, that when Bodhi shoots his first Imperial, K2 says something like, well, you're a rebel now. It's easy to read this as just pointing out that Bodhi has now crossed the Rubicon of engaging in combat against Imperial troops, and will be considered a rebel regardless of what he does from here on out. But it also stands as a data point toward the rebellion means murder theory. Of course, it's also just a nice moment between two characters who know what it's like to change sides. But let's talk a bit about Bodhi as well. Of all the characters in Rogue One, he might actually be my favorite, even if he's more of an inciting incident than a protagonist. I wish we got to see more of Bodhi's journey, most of which happens off-camera. But what I love about him is that he's not a fighter, but still gets to be a hero in his own way. We can't all be the ones who sneak into the bad guy headquarters or shoot down enemy starships, but Bodhi uses his wits and knowledge to confuse the Imperial response to Cassian's team, and it undoubtedly helps. I like watching Bodhi struggling to put into words how he feels about what he's done and what Galen Erso meant to him. Galen told him he could get right with himself if he was brave enough to carry this message and help the rebels, and I feel like that speaks volumes, especially coming from the stammering, unimposing Bodhi. And as I said, I like that he models an even unlikelier kind of hero than a farm boy from nowhere, because he doesn't get the time and space to learn and grow that Luke does. He's just thrust into all these events and has to be as heroic as he's capable of being within his current limitations. Personally, I find it even more inspiring than taking a few years to become a space monk before confronting your evil monk dad, but your mileage may vary. Moving on to intertextual points, there are quite a few, ranging from the sledgehammer obvious to the fairly subtle. On the sledgehammer side, Dr. Evazin and Pondababa, the aliens from the cantina that Luke and Ben will encounter in, what, a day or two? are mysteriously on Jeddah, bumping into people and trying to get into fights over it. Also among the crowds of Jeddah, we see a couple of characters whose outfits are reminiscent of the Emperor's royal guards, suggesting that those guards' livery is modeled after some specific tradition. A somewhat subtle one is the team's spontaneous call sign, Rogue One, which is presumably intended to be the origin of Luke's squadron and empire being called Rogue Squadron. I like the idea that after Luke blew up the Death Star, he wanted to learn more about and honor the spies that made it possible. A really fun bit of metatext is that there are at least a couple of terms in this immediate prequel to A New Hope that originated in earlier drafts of that movie. Chirrut mentions the Force of Others, which is an earlier name for the Force, and he and Bayes are Guardians of the Wills, a reference to how the episodes were going to be excerpted from The Journal of the Wills. 
And my favorite bit of subtle intertextuality is the symbol for Galen Erso's engineering team, visible in their uniform sleeves. If you take a look at it, you'll see that it's a skewed version of the Separatist logo, which is presumable because the prequels showed us that the Death Star was the Geonosians' idea. Cool. Time for my favorite part, which is the nameless rebels frantically relay racing the stolen plans down the hall to keep them away from Darth Vader. I love this scene because it's a microcosm of the movie as a whole. Each one of these soldiers advances the goal just a little bit, dying before he ever gets to find out if it will do any good, but hoping that their sacrifice won't be in vain. I find it genuinely moving. And those are my thoughts about metaphors in Rogue One. But I'd love to hear what I missed. Talk to me on Twitter at rhyrate, or if you're a Chipperish patron, you can chat with me and the other Chipperish hosts on our Discord room. If you're not a Chipperish patron, you can rectify that at patreon.com slash chipperish. Thanks for listening, and metaphors be with you.